This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with the Union of Concerned Scientists Climate and Energy Programs Policy Director, Dr. Rachel Cletus, what the Biden administration needs to address or mitigate the effects of the worsening climate crisis. Dr. Cletus, welcome to the program. Hello, David. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Cletus's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. This is my 15th climate crisis-related interview. On background, the climate catastrophe continues to accelerate. Atmospheric carbon concentrations are now measured at 417 parts per million, the greatest concentration of carbon in our species' existence. Not surprisingly, there is a 99% chance 2020 will be among the top five warmest years, and a two-thirds chance or 66% chance it will be the warmest year on record. This year is also experiencing a record-breaking Atlantic hurricane season with 30 named storms to date and record-breaking wildfires. In the Arctic, that is warming at upwards of three times the rate of the rest of the planet. The albedo effect from the loss of summer ice will be equal to the release of 1 trillion tons of carbon equivalents into the atmosphere. This um, amount approximates 40% of all human-caused GHG emissions since 1750. In addition, northern permafrost that holds almost twice as much carbon as is currently in the atmosphere is thawing 70 years earlier than previously predicted. The planet is also experiencing unprecedented biological annihilation. Vector-borne diseases, including COVID-19, continue to proliferate. And the Trump administration, in denying scientific reality, has rescinded approximately 100 environmental regulations that I discussed with Sabin Center's Michael Berger last May. And finally, as listeners are aware, a federal court ruled earlier this year that Americans do not have a constitutional right to a survivable climate. So with that, welcome Dr. Cletus. Again, we're here to discuss climate policy under the Biden administration. So before diving into that, uh, Dr. Cletus, um, regarding my brief assessment, is there anything you'd like to add, or alternatively I, can, I, alternatively, I can ask the question, the union put out a document a few years ago called the, titled The World Scientist's Warning to Humanity. So if you prefer to answer uh, the latter, what was in that warning? Well, David, I think you've just laid out a very sobering set of realities that we're facing with respect to the climate crisis. Things that climate scientists have been warning us for decades are now actually happening around us. A severe climate crisis is here and now. It's uh, no longer about some distant problem. And it's affecting us here in the United States and around the world. You mentioned the record-breaking hurricane season. We've uh, seen the Atlantic hurricane season. Well, we've seen some pretty extraordinary typhoons on the other side of the world, uh, with the Philippines being hit back to back in the last few weeks. Uh, we've seen extraordinary heat waves around the world, uh, in Europe, in Asia, uh, flooding, uh, and sea level rise, which is this uh, inexorable, uh, continuing, slow-moving disaster that many low-lying places around the world are facing. Uh, including coastal areas in the U.S., uh, especially along the eastern Gulf Coast. Uh, 
Uh, we are at a point now where we are rapidly running out of time to address this very severe crisis. And as you pointed out uh, as well, we actually are in a moment where our nation is facing colliding crises. The COVID-19 pandemic, uh, as you mentioned, uh, but we also have a rapidly uh, a worsening economic crisis. Uh, we have a crisis of systemic racism in our country that is being laid bare uh, in this moment. So all of these are colliding to create a situation where underlying uh, social and economic disparities and discrimination are being exacerbated. And the climate crisis is falling in a very inequitable way uh, around the world and here in the U.S. So uh, what we do now, uh, what the Biden administration does and what future U.S. administrations do is very, very important. The most uh, significant difference we're going to see is that we now have an administration that recognizes the science, will be guided by the science and how they respond to the climate crisis, instead of an administration that basically lied relentlessly about the existence of uh, not just the climate crisis, but even the realities of the COVID crisis, and actually worked to make them all worse. So now we have a president who actually listens to scientists uh, instead of sidelining them and silencing them. Yes. Uh, thank goodness. I, I will say, uh, as has been speculated, Trump's legacy will probably be, moreover, his uh, calling the crisis a hoax and, of course, um, rescinding these upwards of 100 EPA, mostly EPA regulations. Let's get into um, what we might expect from the Biden administration. We could start with, I, I did intend or ask you, uh, what did the uh, Biden campaign pledge to address the climate crisis? But let's let's pass on that since now he's been elected. You wrote uh, in a Union of Concerned Scientists blog post, I believe it was dated uh, November 7th, uh, what the Biden presidency means uh, relative to the climate crisis. You identified uh, various aspects uh, or measures that the Biden administration should take under the title What President Biden Should Do on Climate. If you could note a few of these relative to what you think uh, would be most productive uh, coming from a, a Biden administration. Sure. So what's most important for the Biden administration to do is send a very clear, strong, and early signal that they're going to take this climate challenge seriously and that they're going to address it with all the powers that they have. So I know that many uh, have pointed out that uh, in our democratic system, uh, it is the actions of the president together with the actions of Congress that will really allow for full uh, addressing of problems like the climate crisis. And no doubt Congress must play its part if we're going to get durable, uh, ambitious, and, and comprehensive actions. But there's a lot that the Biden administration can and should do on its own. And much of it can be done fairly quickly uh, within uh, the first 100 days of the administration taking power. One very straightforward and simple thing that everyone has been talking about is, of course, uh, getting back in the Paris Agreement. Uh, the Trump administration on November 4th uh, made final the U.S. exit from the Paris Agreement. That is an action that puts us on the sidelines and uniquely isolated on the world stage. We're the only country that has actually stepped away from the Paris Agreement. We need to get back uh, and act as a responsible major uh, nation of the world, act 
together with other nations to raise ambition around addressing the global climate crisis. And in this sense, it's no different from the COVID-19 pandemic. We can solve these global complex challenges only when we act in concert with other nations. So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's not enough to just get back in the Paris Agreement. We have to follow uh, with domestic action that shows that the U.S. is going to take this problem seriously. We have to set science-informed goals for cutting uh, heat trapping emissions uh, here in the U.S. The IPCC report in 2018 uh, laid down some pretty clear uh, 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 metrics uh, that, the that the global community would have to meet to uh, stay below 2 degrees Celsius, aiming for 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, above pre-industrial levels of temperature increase. So to do, contribute its fair share to that, the U.S. must be on a pathway to get to net zero emissions no later than 2050, preferably before. And we have to be well on that pathway by 2030, having our emissions here in the U.S. Uh, by 2030. To do that, we're going to need action across the economy in every sector. The Biden administration should be directing every federal agency uh, to make sure that they're incorporating climate science in their actions, that they're looking for opportunities to both cut emissions as well as build climate resilience uh, to the climate impacts that are unfortunately already locked in. Uh, there are uh, actions that the administration can take through both executive orders and regulatory actions to cut heat trapping emissions across the economy, and they should do so. Uh, there are a number of very egregious Trump administration executive orders that uh, should be immediately rolled back. And one thing that uh, is perhaps not recognized enough is that Taking these kinds of ambitious actions requires real leadership, not just from the president, but from his cabinet, from heads of agencies. So we'll be watching to see what those appointments look like. We need to have people in charge of these agencies uh, and appointed to cabinet positions that recognize how climate change touches every aspect of our economy and our lives and therefore needs to be integrated into their worldview when they're directing cabinet actions or agency actions. We need to have people who will uphold scientific integrity uh, and uh, allow uh, our nation's best federal government scientists uh, to help uh, inform the kinds of policies that we need to be investing in. And the other piece that's really crucial is uh, going back to something I said earlier, recognizing that climate change at its core is also a problem of equity. And uh, we need to make sure that we address this problem, not just by cutting emissions, but getting on a pathway that's just and equitable. That means addressing the environmental justice concerns of frontline communities that have been exposed to uh, a, a disproportionate amount of the pollution from our dependence on fossil fuels. And we have to make sure that coal-dependent workers and communities uh, that have kept the lights on for decades in our country are treated fairly uh, as we transition away from coal, uh, that there is diversification of local economies, there's investments uh, in uh, people and places that are being hurt by this transition away from coal. Thank you. On the, on the Paris Accord, just to follow up, we can rejoin with 30 days notice is my understanding. So uh, that's, yes. that's easily accomplished. Uh, relative to his administrative or regulatory authority, you did mention what the Trump administration did. I did as well uh, at the top. And of course, probably the most um, egregious was the rollback of the Clean Power Plan. 
Uh, and then, of course, probably soon, immediately after that, you can mention regulating auto tailpipe emissions because we know from the Supreme Court, the EPA's regulatory authority uh, relative to carbon emissions constituting to be defined as, as pollution. I appreciate your point about uh, equity. Uh, you're right. Uh, minorities will suffer, are suffering disproportionately from the climate crisis effects. And you probably know the Biden administration made note during the campaign of, of creating a climate justice office. So that would be uh, certainly welcomed, I believe. Let me go to the Congress um, and ask you what you believe the Congress would do. And let's assume uh, we will have divided government, meaning the Republicans maintain the Senate. Um, you're probably well aware, for example, that this past Congress, the 116th, both the House and the Senate, uh, have uh, select and special climate crisis committees. They both put out reports. I'm sure you're uh, well familiar yeah. with those. But that was probably their most substantive accomplishment. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, during the 116th, demonstrated little or no interest in moving a climate bill, certainly not in revisiting a carbon uh, tax. Uh, what might we expect, or what do you think is reasonably, uh, we can reasonably hope for from the Congress? There are, I should say, slowly, um, slow in developing, but there are Republicans in the Congress who recognize the reality. So, for example, uh, Kathy Castor chairs the House uh, Committee on the Climate Crisis. The ramp ranking member from Georgia, Buddy Carter, he He's a pharmacist, as an aside, but he recognizes, he admits the reality. Uh, needless to say, Georgia has been punished by storm events. Um, but even with that, uh, there's a long way to go for the Republican Party. So what might you expect uh, the Congress to do? And I will say specifically as it relates to subsidies to uh, the oil and coal industry, uh, you may know that the House... Uh, Pelosi tried to move the Clean Energy Jobs and Innovation Act, H.R. 4447, a month ago. And while it passed by just two votes, uh, 18 Democratic progressives uh, voted against the bill, uh, mostly because uh, they saw it in part as giveaways in subsidies of fossil fuel companies. So what might we see from the Congress? I look, the, the stark political reality is that we haven't seen Congress be able to agree on much of anything lately. Uh, right. As you know, uh, the country is uh, suffering devastating uh, public health and economic impacts from this COVID crisis, and they're not even able to reach agreement on a COVID relief bill, which is so urgently needed. Uh, families are going hungry. People are worried about losing their homes. Uh, Unemployment benefits running out very soon in many places. The day after uh, Christmas. Crisis. Yes, yes. Yeah, this, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, this, this, the, this is a complete dereliction of beauty uh, on uh, the part of Congress. But I just want to connect uh, the moment we're in right now, these crises we're in right now, to this longer-term climate crisis that hasn't gone away the whole time. Uh, and what we need Congress to do is come together and recognize that we actually can implement solutions that can help us in this moment uh, provide relief to people that they need right now, jumpstart an economic recovery, and propel us onto this low-carbon climate resilience pathway. We don't have to uh, 
make these false trade-offs that we can only address one crisis at a time. In fact, we are being called to address them all simultaneously. Um, and there are ways to do that. The reality is that uh, climate impacts are coming all over this country. Uh, it doesn't just fall on red states or blue states. We're talking about a hurricane season that has affected the whole Gulf and East Coast of uh, the U.S., a wildfire season that has had extraordinary impacts across the West, uh, western U.S., flooding we've seen this year in the interior of the country's heat waves. Wherever you look around the country, these climate impacts are here and now. They're costing billions of dollars. Uh, they're harming people's lives uh, and livelihoods. Uh, so this needs to be an imperative. And on the bright side, what we're seeing is wherever you look in the country, renewable energy is growing extraordinarily. This year, we're on track for 20% renewable energy in our country. Uh Combined with nuclear power, we're talking about 40% carbon free in 2020. Uh, we have, as a result, seen uh, U.S. power sector emissions fall uh, by about 30% in the last decade. We've seen a pretty historic transition away from coal. In fact, in 2019, uh, power from renewables outpaced that from coal. Uh, unfortunately, we're also seeing this huge over-reliance on natural gas, this rush to gas, which is still a fossil fuel and also has methane emissions associated with it. Um, so we really need to be careful about the pathway we're on. We're also seeing the cost of renewable energy fall uh, so steeply. Uh, for example, Bloomberg New Energy Finance put out numbers saying that we've seen uh, onshore wind costs fall by about 50% since 2010. Uh, solar PV costs uh, have come down by about 84% uh, since 2010, and the cost of batteries has decreased by about 75% uh, just in the last eight years or so. So in many places in the U.S. and around the world, the fact is that renewable energy is becoming the cheapest form of new energy to uh, new power to install and uh, generate power from. And this is the direction in which we need to move. We need to accelerate this momentum and scale it up. And again, this is happening in red states and blue states. We're talking about states in the Midwest. We're talking about Texas. Indiana uh, of all states. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is the, the future of our country. And so what do we need Congress to do? Well, we need Congress to basically harness these solutions that are at our fingertips and make them more widely available, deploy them more widely all around the country. And they just need to create a framework and incentives to do that, uh, whether it's a clean uh, energy standard, uh, whether it's uh, tax incentives uh, for renewables and energy storage, uh, investments in climate resilience that can help communities be better prepared and protected from this uh, onslaught of climate impacts we're experiencing. There's some pretty common sense what should be bipartisan solutions available. Uh, they are hiding behind politics as usual, and uh, this is in no small part because of the outsized influence of the fossil fuel industry on the policy-making process here in the U.S. So the other thing that we have to do is really isolate uh, the fossil fuel industry and take their influence out of the policy-making process. We have to put pressure on them, uh, both through shareholder resolutions uh, as well as through uh, requiring the SEC to uh, implement guidelines around climate risk disclosure. We have to hold that feet to the fire to be part of the solution and not continue to inculcate this dependence 
uh, this addiction to fossil fuels that we have in our country. Thank you. So in my reading, you're absolutely right. It's this false choice that uh, results in we can't afford to transition, particularly now, to renewables uh, when we know uh, it actually makes, there's actually a better economic uh, rationale or imperative to quickly move uh, to renewables. You, you may have noticed um, there was a recent um, IMF report that concluded uh, aggressive uh, movement to green infrastructure would actually boost or accelerate uh, worldwide GDP and job growth. So there's actually, it makes financial sense um, to move quickly or rapidly uh, to renewables. Uh, and per your comment, 7% growth uh, this year in uh, renewable use for electricity generation and the expectation that I will see renewables expand uh, by 50% over the next five years. But the problem with that, of course, is that's that's too slow. But in any event, let me let me go on to um, ask you about um, there is some promising research, and I don't know if you've kept up. I'm imagining you have, but there is some promising research in the world of uh, what's generically termed uh, NET, negative emissions technology. Have you seen this recent Scientific American that has profiled this sun-powered chemistry uh, approach? I have not seen. I've not seen the particular article you mentioned, but uh, yes, there is certainly an active interest uh, in in this arena. I'll say a couple of things. One is that it, it's really important to recognize that we have many of the solutions available to us right now. Uh, the renewable energy pieces, electricity pieces, the piece we were just talking about, but we have the opportunity in the transportation sector as well to shift more of our, our transportation uh, energy needs to electricity and make sure that electricity is coming from clean sources. Electrifying our, our transportation fleet, investing in mass transit. These are, transportation is now the biggest source of emissions here in the U.S., uh, and it's rapidly growing globally. This is a sector that we really have to uh, make sure we're also cleaning up. Uh, industrial uses of energy, again, a huge opportunity to electrify as well as increase energy efficiency and energy uses across all these sectors. And surely, as uh, the IPCC pointed out, to really meet uh, uh, the goals of the Paris Agreement, to stay below 2C and for 1.5, yes, we will uh, potentially need some negative emissions uh uh, options as well. Right now, of course, the, the biggest opportunity we have is to enhance and safeguard our land things, uh, the, the vegetation, the forest, the soil carbon, um, the carbon in wetlands that uh, is uh, helping us right now uh, to mitigate uh, the effect of the amount of emissions from our fossil fuel dependence. But we're losing some of these land things. These wildfires, they're taking a toll on, on forests, not here in the, not just here in the U.S., but in places like the Amazon and the boreal forests. Uh, all around the world, forests are under threat, and that means that this huge store of carbon is also under threat. Yes, there's uh, also an active conversation about the need for R&D in uh, so-called uh, carbon removal technologies, uh, uh, these are, at this point, uh, you know, still very, very expensive, uh, not proved at scale, and, and do come with a lot of uh, 
significant risk that we have to think about, the kind of infrastructure, the kind of social and economic impacts that they might have. So we need to be m- making sure that our R&D efforts uh, do come with good uh, safeguards uh, attached to them, uh, that there is an appropriate transparency and stakeholder process so that uh, we understand the risks uh, that are involved with some of these technologies. But the time to uh, do that R&D and start exploring that is now, because if we do need these technologies further down the line, uh, we have to make the investments now uh, if there's any chance of them coming to fruition a decade or two from now. Yes, and uh, I, I did want... I did have a question here on bioengineering solutions, uh, which I, I personally find a bit frightening, but well, l- 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 allow me to move on. Since this is uh, more formally a healthcare uh, podcast, I, I do want to ask you if the union has uh, paid any particular attention to the healthcare industry. And as listeners will know, I've discussed this on several occasions in that the healthcare industry, after the food industry, emits uh, the most greenhouse gas emissions um, and has increasingly, and has appreciably rather, uh, increased its emissions over the past 30 years. And studies show that just the U.S. healthcare industry's emissions alone uh, account for upwards of 98,000 American deaths annually. Uh, so, of course, it's ironic that the healthcare industry is a major contributor to the problem. But has the union addressed or given any particular attention or focus to the healthcare world? Well, I must say in this moment, our primary focus has been through the lens of COVID-19 and, and uh, the needs uh, in public health uh, and how to support them, uh, the need for PPE. And, and now as, as we move towards this promising frontier, of perhaps having vaccines available at some point, thinking about the entire uh chain of what it will take to uh, deliver those vaccines safely to people, everything from the manufacturing to the distribution to the final um, delivery. So that's been our primary focus. Uh, We've not specifically looked at emissions from the healthcare industry, but more broadly speaking, um, from my experience in working in terms of emissions reductions uh, across the economy, but I can say that we're leaving a lot of options on the table that can actually help save money uh, while cutting emissions. And a big part of that is energy efficiency. Uh, a lot of healthcare is delivered in, in very large facilities where there, there's lots of need for electronics and electricity use. There's a lot of need for heating and cooling. And we as a nation don't have good uniform standards or robust standards to make sure that we're actually continuing to improve our uh, efficiency of energy use in buildings, in all kinds of applications. That's low-hanging fruit that can actually save money uh, for healthcare facilities as well. The second piece I would say is uh, thinking more carefully about how we're, uh, in a more holistic way, how we are... um, uh, we have developed our, our cities and how we live and go to work and, and move around. We in the U.S. have, have a very sprawling kind of land development uh, um, uh, outlook in, in many places, and that comes with it embedded ambition, uh, emissions because we're driving further, we have larger footprints to heat and cool, um, We and, and that has health consequences. 
people are walking less, people are, are living less healthy uh, lifestyles in general. So there's, there's really an opportunity here to connect uh, things that intersect in a way that not only helps cut emissions, but also has these other salutary effects. And I think that the healthcare, uh, uh, the healthcare delivery system, the healthcare industry can certainly be alert and alive to how uh, these things uh, are, are more holistic solutions. And the final piece I would say is the connectedness with uh, some of these other environmental uh, and, and harmful pollutants like PM 2.5, for example, particular matter pollution. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we've seen with the COVID-19 crisis is that long-term exposure to PM 2.5 puts people at higher risk for both hospitalization as well as adverse uh, con- worse ha- uh, consequences, including higher uh, mortality rates. Now, this piece of scientific information that came out this summer reminds us of how our dependence on fossil fuels uh, and the exposure that some communities, especially communities of color and low-income communities, the disproportionate exposure that they've had to that pollution has also put them at higher risk for this latest uh, pandemic. So again, solutions that help us deliver near-term public health benefits by cleaning up our air and water can be the same solutions that help us clean up our energy systems and cut uh, the heat-trapping emissions that are fueling climate change. Thank you. I do have uh, two uh, final questions, and I'll, I'll try to work them in here. And I'm curious to know, what's your assessment? This has been one of my uh, concerns and criticisms for a long while. What's your assessment of media coverage uh, on this topic? Certainly it has improved since the IPCC 1.5 to 2 centigrade, uh, centigrade report was out. Um, but clearly media coverage isn't anywhere close to what it is in Europe. What, that's my bias or prejudice. What's your assessment of media coverage? Well, what I would say is that uh, it, it, the coverage has uh, certainly improved greatly over time. Uh, one thing that I think is really important right now is that whenever we do see these extreme uh, climate-related uh, disasters and weather events, we see more and more the media connecting the dots, not just reporting on the immediate uh, disaster, but recognizing that this is tied to a larger long-term trend uh, that is climate change. It's not an isolated disaster. Um, and that we saw with both the hurricane season and the wildfire season uh, this year in the U.S., a lot of media was making those connections. But here's the problem. If it's not a disaster, it drops out of the headlines. And we cannot address uh, such a profound challenge uh, like climate change if we just do it episodically every time there's a disaster in a reactive fashion. We need to really shift uh, entire systems and market incentives that are putting us put us on a low-carbon pathway. To do that, we really need a financial sector. We need businesses. We need utilities. We need everybody to engage uh, in the solution set. And not just in a crisis way, because in a crisis, you're not doing your best long-term thinking. You're just being reactive to what's in front of you. We actually have to have a long-term perspective. And all markets are very short-sighted. They tend to think maximum three- to five-year time horizon. We have to be thinking about the long-lived infrastructure that we're putting down now, that is furthering our fossil fuel dependence. 
and how we actually need to be investing in a different kind of infrastructure. There's a lot of bipartisan interest in Congress around infrastructure, but what kind of infrastructure is really, really crucial in this moment? So what I would urge from the media coverage is a more sustained uh, focus on the solutions uh, that doesn't just uh, drop in and out of the headlines based on disasters, but actually keeps the pressure on on all sectors of the economy, policymakers as well as the private sector and ordinary people to play their part uh, in uh, making sure that these solutions uh, become a reality. The one piece that I have been heartened by is the increased media coverage around uh, the climate movement, the very broad and diverse climate movement, everything from young youth activists uh, to faith leaders and environmental justice leaders, uh, environmental groups, health groups, who are forming this very broad coalition demanding climate action. It's been gaining power over the last few years, and uh, it's really important for the media to keep... uh, to keep the focus on this power building as well, not just on the machinations of what happens within, uh, you know, the four corners of political power in Washington, D.C., but what do ordinary people around the country mean? What are they demanding? Um, and young people are demanding a safer future. They are, uh, they're really fed up of the excuses for why uh, their future shouldn't matter. Yes, absolutely. Uh, for your first point, it is encouraging that we're hearing more reporting that these natural disasters are uh, uh, less so, or at least there's a man-made component to them. On the news cycle, excellent point. Uh, this subject seemingly comes and goes, unfortunately, relative to uh, what's the latest or a related disaster. For my last question, quickly, since we do have a number of students who listen to these, and I don't believe I've ever asked this question before, but if you were to reference or recommend, say, three three works or publications that you find worthwhile or useful to keep up or to pursue your studies on this subject, what would you recommend? Sorry, a publication for... I, I'm sorry, I missed your P- question. Publications pub- related to uh, understanding the climate crisis or keeping up with the subject. Yeah, so at the risk of self-promotion, I would say that the Union of Concerned Scientists, especially uh, on our website and in our blog, uh, we, what we try to do is we, we try to take the science and translate it in a way that's very user-friendly and connected to people's daily lives. So I really encourage uh, young people who are interested uh, in understanding the science, but also uh, understanding what the engagement opportunities are to please visit our website, ucsusa.org. But the other piece uh, that I've been very struck by is uh, some of the in-depth reporting that the Washington Post and the New York Times have been doing uh, around uh, uh, the climate crisis. These are deep stories. They're not just, uh, you know, based on the headlines of the day, but really try to explain the science uh, behind uh, why these uh, these things are happening. Uh, they try to uh, connect you directly with the voices of scientists in the field. And this piece is really important for young people who are on a pathway to eventually being scientists, perhaps some of you yourselves. Uh, the, the ability to speak to the public and not just have science stay in the ivory tower, but really be translated in a way that people understand how it's connected to their lives is so, so important. 
So even as you're consuming science, uh, just uh, keep your eye out for those people who, who don't use jargon, who don't try to act fancy with big titles, but are really trying to connect their work to your life. Um, and there are really great examples of that in, in some of the, the interviews that have been done recently in the Times and the Post. Yes, the Post this year won the Pulitzer for explanatory reporting on the climate crisis, per your point. And I would just reference uh, Lancet, I think, does a very good job. Lancet Planetary Health, uh, specifically. And then, of course, Inside Climate News and their various others. But with that, uh, Dr. Cletus, we're at our time. So I do want to thank you for your contribution and your comments here. They're welcomed and they're appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate being invited on. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.